Hey there, friend. Thanks for joining me. I hope you're having a good day and doing something fun while you listen to this. I am sitting on my couch early in the morning uh, recording this before I leave for Kenya. And when this airs, if you listen to it right away or within a week, I will be in Kenya on another mission trip with Wes. And I'm so excited. It's going to be really fun. And I'm really looking forward to see what God does while we're there. So if you listen to this within a week of it coming out in February of 2023, then please pray for us while we're in Kenya. But I wanted to record it so that I, I don't know why, but I just like my consistency of, I you know, an episode comes out every Wednesday. It's just, I'm not usually like, you know, type A about things, but I, I feel like if I don't have that consistency, then, you know, a month's going to go by and I'm like, oh man, I haven't even done that podcast thing. So here I am recording it ahead of time. And today I have something, I think, I feel like I say this all the time, but I have something a little different for you. Still talking about marriage and sex. So that's where we're going with this. But today we're going to have story time with Susie. I'm going to read a book to you. Uh, and I was just thinking about reading aloud. And don't you just love read read alouds? I love that. I I was thinking back to my own childhood, and I don't really remember my I remember my dad reading one book aloud to us, like you know, once we were past the the picture book phase. Of course, they read books to us like when we were really little, but not a lot as older kids. But that was something we did a lot at, in our home as a mom. It's one of my favorite uh, memories of being a mom and just time with my kids was the time we spent reading books out loud. I really enjoy reading books out loud and they seem to enjoy it. It was just like, because we homeschooled, we did do that a lot. And uh, it's just, just some special memories of doing that uh, as we would read chapter books, but also of course, reading the Bible out loud and just want to put a little shout out for that. You know, it, it seems like such a hurdle sometimes like, oh, we need to get back to that. I need to like, it's, we need to make this big effort to do it, but it can be just the simplest thing. Even, even if you don't have any kids, just to read the Bible aloud with your husband or wife or whoever, or even your roommates, like just take less than five minutes. What I used to do was I would not eat breakfast when my kids ate breakfast. I would either eat before them or after them. And while they were eating their cereal, I would just read something from the Bible. And another thing I did when I read out loud to them from the Bible was I, because I, as you can guess, I always had things to say about it, but I would always try to ask them first. So what did you think of that? And even the three-year-old, they, they couldn't surprise you and God can really bless you through your children when you say you read something from the Bible and just ask them what they think about it first. Sometimes you find out that they didn't understand it at all. <laughs> you figure out what you need to clarify. But other times, God can really speak to you through the lips of children. And it's pretty cool. So there you go, a plug for reading aloud. And now don't be scared. We are going to read, well, I am going to read and you're going to listen to the introduction of a book that I think is really awesome and definitely um, recommend to all the married people out there. But today I want to read the introduction because 
it's for married people and not married people alike. It's just such a great explanation of what God intends marriage to be, which I think all of us can benefit from. So I hope you'll keep listening. This is the Pause and Ponder podcast with me, Susie. Thanks for joining me. And today we are going to be pondering the greatness of God's plan for marriage, God's expectations for what every marriage should be. Okay, so I have this introduction to this book that I want to read to you. Now, the reason I want to read this introduction, just the introduction, not the whole book. So first of all, uh, I'm feeling okay about reading the whole book the whole thing out loud to you because I feel like it's sort of like advertising for the book. So it's like a good thing for the author, not stealing his work kind of thing. And the, um, but the reason that I want to read this introduction to you is I just thought it was so awesome because he goes through what he calls biblical expectations for marriage. And it's, there's 10 of them. I'm going to do five this time and I'm going to do five in the next episode to just split it up a little bit, but I thought it was such a great idea. Like think about, and he'll describe it. This is just me talking first. Um, Think about what did you expect going into marriage before you even got married? Or if you're not married, what do you, what, what do you anticipate, you know, marriage being like, or if you are married, what are you expecting now out of your spouse, out of yourself, out of your marriage? It's such a great, place to start and to revisit because I I love talking about expectations. Usually I talk about expectations um, in motherhood and and with your kids. Uh, I read a book years and years ago about that and I never forgot it. And and so it always triggers me when I am getting frustrated to fall back to, well, what was I expecting? Was I expecting something unrealistic? And often I was. Anyway, I adjusted my expectations and I got less frustrated. So it's just, it's true about all expectations though. So anyway, this book goes through uh, biblical expectations. What does God want us to expect in our, of ourselves and of our mate and in our marriage? Isn't that a great thing to consider? So with that build up, the book is called a Celebration of Sex by Dr. Douglas E. Rosenau, I think is how you pronounce his name, Rosenau, R-O-S-E-N-A-U. And so you might be thinking like, whoa, I don't want to hear you read that book, <laughs> especially if you're one of my kids, although I think only Sophie listens to this anymore. But uh, it's okay. Just relax. I'm just reading the introduction. But I do highly recommend this book for all the married people listening. Um, it's it's honestly, uh, it's a really big book and parts of it are a little boring, but you could read the parts that interest you. And certainly the introduction is awesome. And that's what I'm going to read. And at first I was planning to just jump to the biblical expectations part, but I started rereading the beginning of the introduction and it's just, it's just so good. It's like what I've been trying to say for the last few episodes on God's design for marriage. So I'm just going to read it and hopefully you're going to enjoy this read aloud with Susie. 
All right, here we go. Here's Dr. Rosenau's introduction to his book. Everyone wants to love and be loved, to create passionate love relationships that reach deep into the soul and totally transform the individuals involved. Hollywood makes billions on this theme, but actually God is the author of this intimate desire. God is love and humans are created in his very image to love. Nowhere is this more clearly, clearly revealed than through God's grand metaphor for intimacy, that picture window into the heart of the almighty, sexuality. God created sexuality to reveal himself, how he operates, and the value he places on intimate relating, a wonderful picture into the almighty who desires his human creation to understand what love is all about. Quote, so God created man in his image, in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them, Genesis 1.27. With sexuality, God made two different types of relationships, the family and gender with brothers and sisters, fathers, mothers, and children, and romantic marriage with erotic enjoyment and becoming one flesh. In both the gender and romantic modes, Sexuality unveils God's excitement over committed relationships and loving connection. God has a fantastic formula for your sex life. And then it has this formula under, under that sentence. An intimate marriage plus mature lovers equals a fulfilling sex life. That's the formula. An intimate marriage plus mature lovers equals a fulfilling sex life, like a math formula. If you want powerful techniques and easy answers, you may be disappointed in this book, and my readers are glad, I'm sure. You don't want to hear that from me. God's plan often involves time, effort, and difficult changes. It can be a wonderful journey if you are willing to take on this fun challenge of growing up into a skilled lover and learning to be truly intimate you'll discover that sex is more about an exciting process and way of life than it is a simple acquisition of techniques. And that's what I was saying, pause the book. That's what I was saying uh, the last few episodes that, you know, in a committed, there's a difference in how you approach this when you are in a committed relationship versus when it's only a physical connection like it would be without the commitment. Back to the book. In God's design, sexual fulfillment and an intimate marriage can never be separated. He wove sexuality intricately into the fabric of marital companionship and created the concept of two becoming literally one flesh. A fun, trusting friendship precedes fulfilling sexual interaction. A great sex life will not ensure a great marriage because a loving companionship and a right relationship with God are the essentials. Let me read that sentence again. A great sex life will not ensure a great marriage because a loving companionship and a right relationship with God are the essentials. But a great companionship can provide the foundation for fantastic lovemaking. Great married companionship. Next, we have this heading. Essentials for an intimate marriage and a great sex life. 
If a good sex life is built on an intimate marital companionship, what are the vital factors of this companionship and how is it built? Good question, right? What are reasonable expectations of an intimate relationship, marriage, and a fulfilling sexual union? So here we go. We're going to evaluate uh, our own expectations and then look at the biblical expectations. But I'm going to read this next part too because it's really good. It has the heading, a dynamic covenant partnership must be formed. So this is the first thing. The first thing in God's design for marriage. The Bible describes the beauty and complexity of the marital companionship that creates the context for lovemaking. The loving, intimate relationship of you and your spouse is modeled after the relationship of God and his chosen people. A mature marital partnership truly fashions itself after redemption. How? in that you die to yourself and let go of any self-protectiveness. There's a great marital principle right there. Are you dying to yourself in your marriage? He goes on to say, a covenant is formed. Marriage is not a simple contract, but a deep vow and promise. You create a bonded partnership in which you submit your will for the good of your mate. And that goes both ways for husbands and wives. You submit your will for the good of your mate. He goes on to say, you become naked, nurturing, and safe with each other. Quote, love is patient. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. Dot, dot, dot. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Of course, that's from 1 Corinthians 13. Your union is based on love, humility, gentleness, and trust. Your trust is well-founded because each of you reaches out and lovingly nurtures the other as carefully as you would watch out for your own body. This is how it's supposed to be, guys, right? In this union, you look honestly at your own rough edges and shortcomings and humbly try to change them. There's another good principle. Look at your own shortcomings and try to change them, not the other person. He goes on. You choose to give as precious gifts the things that your mate desires and needs. It is a marvelous atmosphere for fun, sexual relating, and intimate connecting when this kind of tenderness, trust, genuine empathy, and cooperation abound. I love the words nurture and connected, and I use them many times in this book. Great examples of nurturing are parents lovingly caring for their children, or gardeners carefully watering and tending their plants. Mates lovingly nurture each other as well. You are connected with your mate in a way far more profound than the splicing together of two electric wires or the tying of two ropes. You are connected in a partnership that grows ever richer and deeper, but takes constant attention and renewal. Did you hear that part? Constant attention and renewal. This is me again, Susie, saying, even if you've been married for a long time, don't fall into a rut of doing things the way you've always done them. Keep listening because you need your marriage needs constant attention and renewal. All right, he goes on. This is the concept of soulmates and of lovers cleaving together. Like steel being refined, 
a unique synthesis is created and a profound connection is formed. A wonderful synergetic dynamic can occur in marriage. The whole is much greater than the sum of its parts. Individuality, personal pleasure, and separate responsibility are not lost. You might have thought they were, but they're not. Did you hear that part? Especially if you're not married. I, I'll, a little aside here. I was recently talking to a bunch of young women, and they, when I said, you all want to get married, don't you? They said no, and I, I was shocked. Is this the, the trend in today's youth that they don't want to get married? And it made me really sad because, you know, think back on uh, the last few paragraphs I just read. This is a beautiful, wonderful thing. Marriage is awesome. Is it hard? Yes, of course. And it takes work. But look at what it can be. It's so awesome. And that last sentence, your individuality, your personal pleasure, and your separate responsibilities are not lost. This is the, the strange um, mystery, really, of marriage, is that you become one, but you still retain your individuality. He goes on to describe it this way. In dying to self and becoming a one flesh companion, each partner becomes stronger and achieves things that could not be accomplished alone. The two have the best of both worlds. They are a nurturing couple and each flourishes as an individual. This is how it's meant to be. And it really is possible. That's me saying that. He goes on, a totally unique and powerful partnership is created. And from this unique relationship of marriage can come sexual enjoyment for both individuals and as a couple. It will seem like one plus one equals four. So now we're about to get to the expectations part, but isn't that just a great description of what marriage is meant to be? And if you're thinking, well, my marriage isn't like that, well, keep listening. And perhaps one of these ex biblical expectations needs to be addressed. But just remember this part where he said, oh, what was that sentence? Where he was like, you just try to change yourself. Humbly look at your own uh, part in it and change yourself. I don't think he has this as one of the expectations necessarily. But trying to change your spouse is the wrong foundation for this kind of marriage. It has to be coming together in humility. But anyway, I have enough to read. I will stop commentating. All right. The next part is uh, the, the heading, reasonable biblical expectations must be incorporated. So here's the part I was talking about. He goes on to say, most couples enter marriage with a variety of expectations about how it should be. Which of the following expectations did you bring into marriage? Now, I'll just pause, think about that for a second. What were you expecting marriage to be? Or if you're not married, what do you expect marriage to be? He gives some suggestions. Here are his suggestions. Expectations that you would never fight, that the husband would automatically take the garbage, take out the garbage and vacuum, that your partner would never be attracted to anyone else, or that you would eat dinner together at the table most nights, or Christmas Eve would be spent with your family or neither family. The money would be handled wisely and there would be a joint checking account. That sex would fall into place easily. Those are a list. He has this list of expectations people might have. I can remember the couple who told me 
that if they could only let go of all their expectations, they would have a happy marriage. And I asked them, why get married if you don't expect anything from the relationship and your mate? And this was a really good point because I tend to do that when, like I was telling you earlier, if I got frustrated, I lowered my expectations. And when I have struggled in my marriage, which of course we, every marriage has its ups and downs and struggles, I have attempted to do that. I'm not going to expect anything. So I really like this, that that's not the answer. The task you face, he, the author continues, the task you face is not getting rid of all your expectations, but having them realistically on biblical principles. So good. Here are 10 reasonable desires based on God's economy for intimate relationships. May he give you wisdom and courage to make the changes you need within your partnership. It may seem like strange advice, but the quality of your sex life may depend on turning off the television, picking a good fight, becoming independent of your parents, setting up a budget, or taking regular vacations. And now he's going to go into what are the biblical principles that should set our reasonable expectations in marriage. And if this isn't happening in your marriage, then these are goals to work towards, right? Okay, number one, each of us will become a partner and soulmate, offering unconditional love, understanding, and support. We will be best friends. And then he has these verses. The Lord God said, quote, it is not good that man should be alone, Genesis 2.18. And husbands, dot, 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 dwell with them with understanding, dwell with your wives with understanding, giving honor to the wife. All of you be of one mind. That is from 1 Peter 3, 7 and 8. And also from Ephesians 5, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. No one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it. And the two will become one. And finally, Proverbs 17, a friend loves at all times and a brother, in parentheses mate, is born for adversity, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. So then he goes on to explain this principle. In a boxing match, the boxer has in his corner a manager who is unconditionally committed, unconditionally committed to helping the fighter use his best shots, encouraging him, correcting mistakes, taking care of any wounds, and preparing him for maximum efficiency. Mates are each other's managers. Marriage is a safe retreat from the fight of daily living. You have an ally in your corner who will kiss your boo-boos and persist in supporting you. Someone who knows you better than anyone else in the whole world and still loves you. This is what it's meant to be, people. An important part of cleaving together and becoming one flesh is being intimate companions. You become soulmates and best friends in marriage as you share your needs, your innermost feelings and desires, and your future goals. It is important to have a same-sex best friend but your partner should also be a best friend. Both mates and especially husbands struggle with this, at times being too private and not disclosing needs and feelings to another. Later on in this book, you'll learn the art of connecting conversation. There's a little plug to read the whole book. And that's the end of the first one. Isn't that so true? We are meant to be soulmates. And I've heard some people say like that soulmates don't exist. 
Well, yes, they do. Your mate is to be your best friend. And you know, it can be tempting to sometimes have your same-sex friends become your best friend. And I think we really have to guard against sharing more with friends than we do with our own mate, right? That, that That's a emotional connection. If there's things that I would tell my girlfriends that I won't, wouldn't tell Wes, even about my spiritual life, like what God is doing in my life, I need to guard against that and make sure I am sharing with him and taking the time to share with him more than with anyone else. I need to make sure I'm taking the time to share with him more than anyone else. Okay, so number two. So this is kind of balances out number one. So number one, we have your best friends. You share with each other more than anyone else in the whole world. You know each other better than anyone else in the whole world. And you're in, you're in their corner. You're for them. But number two kind of balances that out, that they're not your whole world. Your, your spouse is not your whole world. It says this, number two, neither of us will expect the other to meet all of our needs or take sole responsibility for our personal happiness. We will give each other space to breathe and have a life. I like this. This has definitely been an expectation and a, a, a way of operating in my marriage that, you know, we, we're not telling each other what to do all the time. Wes and I are both really independent. So this one, we just sort of fell into. I, it's funny. I, I guess I shouldn't give all this commentary because this is going to get too long. But I am someone who loves people by giving them space. Isn't that weird? I think I'm weird that way. But that's who I am. That's how I work. So anyway, here's what this guy says about it, the author. Oh, well, he has some scripture. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do so for his good pleasure. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. And each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else, for each one should carry his own load. Galatians 6, 4 to 5. Each of you, so what does he mean by this? How do we balance this? Each of you must build support networks consisting of helpful friends and the Lord. Ultimately, you must rely on God because he is the only unfailing source of peace, purpose, and happiness. And this is really true. And I mean, helpful friends and God really are not in the same category, right? I mean, it is a it should be a biblical expectation that your spouse cannot meet all your needs, that Jesus has to be first. And I feel like there's a lot of discontentment in marriage when we expect our spouse to meet needs that Jesus should meet. Jesus needs to fill up our hearts with his love for us, that we are completely satisfied and have value because of Jesus's love, not looking for our spouse to do that. That's going to lead to a lot of discontentment and frustration. But anyway, he goes on to say, I remember the single person who came up to me after a conference and told me, Dr. Rosenau, you are lucky to be married because you are never lonely and have instantly available sex. <laughs> yeah, that was a single person. I reassured him that married people get lonely because we can't always be there for each other. I also told him I wasn't aware of that rule in marriage of instantly available sex and I would have to tell my wife about it. 
Your mate can meet your sexual needs, but you have many other needs that are impossible for one person to meet. You need a best friend of the same sex, supporting couple friendships and fellowship groups. We need all these things. You will perhaps need tennis buddies, kindred political souls, good babysitters, efficient accountants, or surrogate grandparents. You must also learn to nurture yourself and work on your own salvation as you become self-aware and confident. If you are insecure and possessive, you can smother your mate. Real love is free of fearful demands and gives breathing room for you and your mate to grow and experience life. You must work on your own happiness as you take responsibility to grow and experience contentment. Okay, and now number three. And I think actually I'll stop after number three, even though I said I was going to do five. This is getting too long. I don't like my episodes to be too long. So I'll split it up a little more. Anyway, number three. We will leave our father and mother and create a new independent special family unit. You know, leave and cleave, right? Ephesians 5.31 says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Leave, cleave, and weave. That's, that's how it was always taught to me. Here's what he says. Disentangling yourself financially and emotionally, that part's important, from your parents and family is important. Together, you and your mate are creating a new partnership and family. You cannot hold on to the need to run back to your parents for constant nurturing. You need to make a definite, symbolic statement that your spouse is your first priority. It is the husband who is specifically commanded to leave father and mother. It's difficult to learn the wisdom and maturity of gently separating from parents and making your marriage a special unit. Sometimes this process of becoming independent and separate is called individuating. I never heard that before, but okay. This needs to happen individually before it can happen as a couple. Sometimes with age and maturity comes the ability to do this more efficient, more effectively. It does not mean either disrespecting your parents or never leaning on them for support. The act of leaving your parents makes your mate feel special and protected, a, a priority as you meet your mate's needs. And it creates that new and unique partnership. If you are having trouble individuating from your parents, you will probably need to move away from them geographically. You may also need to stay in a motel when you visit your parents to give your partner a chance to regroup, to tell your parents you don't want to hear your mate put down, or to expand your group of wise counselors and sounding boards beyond the scope of them alone. So kind of anticipating some problems, if you ask me there, but I guess that's probably the reality for a lot of people, right? Leave and cleave. Easier said than done, I have to say. I remember this being a struggle uh, in the first few years of marriage. And it's it's a process. It's a process of, you know, yes, you get married and probably, hopefully, you're moving into your own place. So there's that initial separation. But making your marriage it, its own family unit separate from the family units of that you grew up in is, I think, a process that happens over time because it involves especially holidays, right? How you celebrate holidays. And it can be hard because 
you know, when you, if, if you've only been married a few years, you've had more time with that family you grew up with and you still love them. So balancing that, still loving them, but keeping a separate unit is tricky. But here it is, a biblical expectation that you will be your own family unit. But I just put a plug in. It doesn't mean you completely reject your, you know, family of origin either. So there you go. So I'm going to stop there because uh, I'm, my length is getting too long for this episode. And that's enough to think about. It's enough to think about just that foundation of what marriage is meant to be. And hopefully it was encouraging that marriage is awesome. Like, look at this wonderful relationship God has designed for us and how wonderful it can be when we do it his way. And to examine our own hearts, not just tell our spouse what to do, but to examine our own hearts and am I living up to the biblical principles that God has put in place for marriage? The first three being that your mate is your best friend, your soulmate, you're in your mate's corner. You are for them. And then number two, that you don't look to your mate to meet every need that you have. But of course, first turn to Jesus to meet your need to be loved, to be known, to fill you up. And other people, we need other people in our life. And number three, that you leave that original family unit and create a new, even just without kids, you create a new family unit. You are a new family. And there should be time where you spend just your family, whether it's just your husband or with kids or whatever, separate from the families of origin. So those are the first three principles. And next time I'll do the next three or four. I don't know. We'll see how many I get through. I hope you enjoyed listening to this and that it um, inspired you to think of marriage in a different way or to reevaluate. And what did it say? Give more constant attention and renewal to your own marriage. Even if you're like, oh yeah, of course we do that. You know what? We can all improve. We can be a better friend. We can put in the effort to include other people in our life. And we can be intentional in making our family unit number one in our life, number one in our attention to human relationships. And that concludes Storytime with Susie for today. I hope that you will continue to ponder and maybe anticipate the biblical principles that should set our expectations in marriage. Till next time. Thanks for listening. And I hope and pray that you will ponder God's great design for your life, whether it's marriage or something else, that you will come under submission to his great plan for your life. Till next time. Thank you.